0: Hey, California friends. We're coming your way this November. In LA, we'd love to see you at the Getty Center for two all-star shows on November 11th with Judy Greer, Randall Park, Richa Morjani, Constance Zimmer, and more. And join us on November 12th, just outside of San Francisco at the Bankhead Theater where Tony Hale, Jane Kaczmarek, and Mara Wilson take the stage. Whether you're in or around Northern or Southern California, we hope you come out and experience the magic of live fiction with us. Check our website at selectedshorts.org slash on tour for all the details. To many, the status quo is an old worn favorite sweater. To others, it is nothing less than a straight jacket. On this Selected Shorts, women ready to escape stifling, everyday strictures at any cost. Featuring Margaret Atwood, the feminist classic The Yellow Wallpaper, and me, Meg Wolitzer. You won't be sorry you stayed. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Well-behaved women seldom make history. Surely you've heard the said or seen it printed on a coffee mug. It's a good reminder, as you over-caffeinate, that change has happened when women have been willing to make a racket, despite those other people saying, shh, pipe down, quiet. But life is not a library, as all the poorly behaved and brilliantly brave women of the world would tell you, and in their outside voices, no doubt. The author of that great line, the historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, was writing about American colonial witches and iconoclasts like the Puritan reformer Anne Hutchison. Out of context, the line easily applies to any woman who truly shakes things up, from Harriet Tubman to Malala Yousafzai, or, say, to lesser-known rebellious personalities who have sprung like wildfire from the minds of fiction writers. The stories in this hour are all about dangerous women. While these stories are not always about direct, physical confrontation with the patriarchy, the characters in some way present a challenge to the powers that be. In one story, a fairy tale archetype reclaims her power. In another, a boisterous and brilliant young student threatens to upend the order of her high school. And in a third, a Victorian-era wife fights for her sanity in a household seemingly designed to constrain her. These stories were performed as part of a night all about dangerous women. Our host was the writer Mona el the Egyptian-American journalist and critic might be called a dangerous woman herself. She's the founder of the Feminist Giant newsletter, author of The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, and a speaker who never pulls punches, whether talking about Islam, feminism, or the patriarchy.
1: When producers at Selected Shorts asked me if I'd like to host an evening of fiction featuring women that threaten or outright demolish the status quo, you can imagine my response Fuck yes. <laughs> I'm especially drawn to dangerous women because one of my earliest feminist role models was the Egyptian feminist Nawal Saadawi, who sadly died last year. I first encountered her in a documentary when my family lived in London. We had just recently moved from Egypt. And we were watching a documentary about Egypt in which she said something. I can't remember what she said, but there was this woman with shockingly bright white hair. She was owning the screen and she was speaking her mind. And then soon after, I saw this incredible woman. An Egyptian man came on and said, that woman is ruining Egypt's reputation. And I was 13 years old at the time and I was like, I don't know who this woman is, but I want to be her.
0: That was Mona El-Tahawi on stage at Symphony Space. Later in the program, I'll talk with El-Tahawi about what it means to be a dangerous woman. Now let's hear our first story about women who upset the status quo. It's by Margaret Atwood. She's a writer who has repeatedly proven herself a voice of resistance in books such as The Handmaid's Tale and its sequel, The Testaments. Reading the story is Anne Harada, a very funny actor from Broadway shows including Avenue Q, films such as Admission, and series including the recent Schmigadoom. This is Margaret Atwood's Unpopular Gals.
2: Unpopular gals. One. Everyone gets a turn and now it's mine. Or so they used to tell us in kindergarten, it's not really true. Some get more turns than others and I've never had a turn, not one. I hardly know how to say I or mine. I've been she, her, that one for so long. I haven't even been given a name. I was just the ugly sister. Put the stress on ugly. The one the other mothers looked at, then looked away from and shook their heads gently. Their voices lowered or ceased altogether when I came into the room in my pretty dresses, my face leaden and scowling. They tried to think of something to say that would redeem the situation. Well, She's certainly strong, but they knew it was useless. So did I. You think I didn't hate their pity, their forced kindness? And knowing that no matter what I did, how virtuous I was, or hardworking, I would never be beautiful. Not like her, the one who merely had to sit there to be adored. You wonder why I stabbed the blue eyes of my dolls with pins and pulled their hair out until they were bald? Life isn't fair. Why should I be? As for the prince, you think I didn't love him? I loved him more than she did. I loved him more than anything. Enough to cut off my foot. Enough to murder. Of course I disguised myself in heavy veils to take her place at the altar. Of course I threw her out the window and pulled the sheets up over my head and pretended to be her. Who wouldn't in my position? But all my love ever came to was a bad end. Red hot shoes, barrels studded with nails. Well, that's what it feels like, unrequited love. She had a baby too, I was never allowed. Everything you've ever wanted, I wanted also, Two. A libel action, that's what I'm thinking. Put an end to this nonsense. Just because I'm old and live alone and can't see very well, they accuse me of all sorts of things. Cooking and eating children. Well, can you imagine? What a fantasy! And even if I did eat just a few, whose fault was that? Those children were left in the forest by their parents who fully intended them to die. Waste not, want not has always been my motto. Anyway, the way I see it, they were an offering. I used to be given grown-ups. Men and women both stuffed full of seasonal goodies and handed over to me at seed time and harvest. The symbolism was a little crude, perhaps, and the events themselves were, some might say, lacking in taste, but folks' hearts were in the right place. In return, I made things germinate and grow and swell and ripen. Then I got hidden away, stuck into the attic, shrunken and parched and covered up in dusty draperies. Hell, I used to have breasts. Not just two of them, lots. (laughs) Ever wonder why a third tit was the crucial test once for women like me? Or why I'm so often shown with a garden, a wonderful garden, in which mouth-watering things grow. Mulberries, magic cabbages, Rapunzel, whatever that is, and all those pregnant women trying to clamber over the wall by the light of the moon to munch up my fecundity without giving anything in return. Theft, you'd call it, if you were at all open-minded. That was never the rule in the old days. Life was a gift then, not something to be stolen. It was my gift, by earth and sea I bestowed it, and the people gave me thanks. Three. It's true, there are never any evil stepfathers. (laughs) Only a bunch of lily-livered widowers who let me get away with murder vis-a-vis their daughters. Well, where are they when I'm making those girls drudge in the kitchen or sending them out into the blizzard in their paper dresses? working late at the office, passing the buck, men. But if you think they know nothing about it, you're crazy. The thing about those good daughters is they're so good, obedient and passive, sniveling, I might add. No get up and go. What would become of them if it weren't for me? Nothing, that's what. All they'd ever do is the housework which seems to feature largely in these stories. They'd marry some peasant, have 17 kids, and get a dutiful wife engraved on their tombstones, if any. Big deal. I stir things up. I get things moving. Go play in the traffic, I say to them. Put on this paper dress and look for strawberries in the snow. It's perverse, but it works. All they have to do is smile and say hello and do a little more housework or for some gnomes or nice ladies or whatever. And bingo! They get the king's son and the palace and no more dishpan hands. Whereas all I get is the blame. God knows all about it. No devil, no fall, no redemption. Grade two arithmetic. You can wipe your feet on me, twist my motives around all you like. You can dump millstones on my head and drown me in the river. But you can't get me out of the story. I'm the plot, babe. And don't ever forget it.
0: That was Anne Harada performing Margaret Atwood's Unpopular Gals. One of the things that's notable about the story is Atwood's refusal to use fairy tale designations like witch, hag, and so on. And once you get rid of those labels, the character in question becomes a little more complicated and maybe even confusing. Because you have to actually consider her on her own terms rather than merely rely on what the Brothers Grimm told you about her. In fact, I wonder what the Sisters Grimm might have said. Next up, a story from the writer and creative director Shantika Sigers. This story, originally featured in the Paris Review, was chosen for the Best American Short Stories anthology of 2021. The dangerous woman here is a student named B, a rambunctious but brilliant girl whom our narrator, called only teacher, will do anything to help. To read this story is the performer Pascal Armand. Her resume ranges from the Broadway production of Eclipsed, for which she earned a Tony nomination to series including Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And now she brings us Shantika Siger's Away With B. Away
3: With B. B walks into the classroom wearing the clothes she had on the day before. The teacher understands that this is going to be a bad day. B's hair is uncombed, face unwashed. She arrives precisely 12 seconds late. Not so late that the teacher has to make a big deal about it, but not on time. B.U. walks like a prisoner forcibly escorted, snatching herself along step by step, then pouring her thin body into the seat. She has no books, no pencil or paper. She drapes herself over the desk and waits for the teacher to continue or challenge. The teacher rides the L two stops from the school and into an entirely different country. Chicago pieces itself together that way. The platform at her station offers a clear view of the rear deck of her condo, and she always looks. Sometimes, she hopes to catch her husband there with a woman, a stranger, or a friend, his hand invading the buttons of this woman's shirt, taking a fistful of her breast. This has never happened. She is relieved and disappointed. Occasionally, she catches him grilling in the brown sandals she hates. She feels like a spy trying to decipher her own life. The teacher grew up in the country and has seen things die the right way. You can't die right in the city. There's no place to take yourself off to be alone with your thoughts and the last wind you will ever feel. In the living room, her husband reads a magazine with his ancient cat on his lap. She has told him that it is far past time for that cat. He was disgusted by her cruelty. She shouldn't have married a man from the city. The teacher dissects Bee as the girl walks toward her classroom. She looks like a doll made for tea parties that was thrown outside to fend for itself. A nobility lives in Bee's bones, an ancient, undiluted beauty that most eyes have forgotten. She grows in angles. The broadness of her nose and the wide-sculpted divot leading down to her lips and the deep, delicate hollows behind her collarbone. The disorder of her swarming hair, misshapen and dusty, but still a laurel. B announces that the endoplasmic reticulum has been drawn in the wrong place. She walks up to the board, showing the class her fearless back, and wipes at the drawing of a cell. She rakes the chalk across the blackboard with the concentration of a doctor repairing a beating heart. This happens with these children. Every now and again, their bellies are full enough, a lesson hits them in the right way or they've paused their channel surfing to learn about it in a documentary. The teacher knows better than to get too excited. Next week, B will be hungry and fallible. B's brother is Aldous which means her mother is flora flora is regarded as less a person than as a familiar chaotic fixture of the neighborhood a tiny woman singing in a drunken chorus with men or a scabby statue sleeping soundly in empty lots b doesn't have to bring home a report card ever no one will make generic parental demands for better grades The teacher returns to herself at B's age and begins crafting infinite versions of her life. She wonders what terrible things such freedom would have done to her. The teacher considers asking B if she can comb her hair for her. Girl, sit down and let me give you some twists. The teacher thinks of B arriving early in the morning She will bring her own counter-sized vats and silos of grease and gel. She will give her architect straight parts. She will oil the girl's scalp, her finger pointing down each tender row. And then the girl will go to Stanford and then Flora will get off drugs. (sighs) No, too much, even for fantasy. The ask curls on her tongue. The teacher stands in the laundry closet and fishes the net bag containing her bras out of the washing machine. Her gaze falls on the domed hood of the litter box, and she starts. She has not seen the cat for days. In fact, she forgot that they even had a cat. Her husband jumps when she races into the bedroom. Where's the cat, she pants? He holds the information for a beat as her punishment, then points to his closet. Did this man put a dead cat in the closet? (laughs) The fact that she has to wonder makes her feel such embarrassment for him that she turns away. She walks to the closet and unfolds the fan doors slowly so as not to disturb sleep or death. On the bottom of the shallow closet, the cat seems flat and shapeless like the discarded clothes surrounding it, an abandoned vessel that life no longer occupies. The cat has looked this way for months now, so (laughs) the teacher reaches out to gently, gently rub an ear. Lately, when the teacher receives her most cherished compliment, a toneless voice in her mind responds with such swiftness that the words feel like facts. You're a great teacher. Not as great as your grandmother, your great aunt, or your cousin. You're a great teacher. Not as great as the national teacher of the year. You're a great teacher. You aren't even the best in this shitty little school. You're a great teacher. There is absolutely no proof of that. You teach science. There has to be proof or it can't be true. B does not walk into the classroom and the teacher is afraid. B only comes to school because it is a relatively safe place to be during the day. The teacher walks into her empty classroom and the urge to throw a tantrum is so strong her arms shoot up from her sides before she stops them. She had been so proud that she had made her classroom pleasing to the eye. She had been just biblically prideful that she had found a modern design that organized the chaos of the body into three colors and three harmonious fonts against b's empty seat b's crisped edges every lesson the teacher has to teach seems trivial the bell rings the teacher allows her arms to soften The next morning, the teacher feels a little better about herself because B has never brought her to tears. The English teacher is getting out of her jetta. B has wrung tears out of her twice. As expected, the tears improved nothing for anyone. The teacher's blackness has given her the gift of mastery over her tear ducts. In her entire life, there has been no benefit to expressing sorrow or anger or frustration or pain, so the teacher offers B none. She understands that B cannot offer her any. They will have to find something else to exchange. B walks into class without a look in the teacher's direction. She wears clothes from the emergency closet a pair of purple corduroy pants cut in a reasonably popular fashion, a white sweater that has lost all its comforting softness. The teacher wonders if B knows what it is like to find comfort in the things wrapped around your body. The next day, B walks into class in a dress a size too small, with tiny yellow and green flowers on a bright blue background. It is a strange juxtaposition with her feline face, the impatience of her eyes. If other students do not answer questions to her liking, she raises her hand. She has the right answer or a sullen question that shows that she understands the complex interactions of the brain. When B's arm climbs into the air, the teacher worries that the too small dress will give and she will burst in the classroom, petals everywhere. The teacher and her husband wander Home Depot. Her husband loves Home Depot, but she has no idea why. He is limited to sections he can choose completed items from like plants, appliances, or grills. He buys nothing here that has to come from here. The teacher walks away from him and into the aisles of more challenging equipment. She touches the soft splinters in lumber, rattles a bin of nails, cups her palm around pipes. Her father and great aunts taught her how to fix things. She finds her husband, tall and handsome, carrying a box of light bulbs and looking for her. B has been confined in the principal's conference room. The teacher considers sneaking in but watches through the glass panel instead. The girl carefully unwraps a Hershey's kiss. She uses a dirty nail with streaks of mucus green polish to scrape the foil away, then tugs lightly at the branded ribbon still stuck to the chocolate. The teacher feels a soul-deep respect for this girl's calm. Down the hall, the faculty lounge crackles with some new sin. The English teacher says, did you hear about B? She cut up a bird with scissors. The teacher pauses. Imagines a bird. Imagines bee. Imagines scissors. Silver with lightly pockmarked black handles. She hears the metal open and close. She tries to turn it into a weapon. She can't put these pieces together, but she can feel the other teacher's fear under the hissing indignation. She is embarrassed for them. The clump of skin and tissue and organs smeared across a paper plate on the desk seem to demand that everyone in the principal's office remain standing as they discuss what to do about B. The teacher pushes hard against people a teacher isn't supposed to push against. This thing has been dead for days. She pounds her fist on the desk and sends shame vibrating through them all. The featherless oddity bounces in agreement. Did anyone see her kill it? Send that girl back to class. B is snapping her gum. The powerful cracks echo off the smooth surfaces in the classroom, incorrectly punctuating the teacher's lesson. For a while, B entertains herself by leaving the air empty and then firing off around, making the girl next to her jump. This is a direct challenge, and the teacher gets angry. She has an unspoken agreement with B, built on respect that she is not at all sure is mutual. She is supposed to have a way with B. B does not walk into the classroom and has not walked into the classroom for four days now. The teacher closes her eyes, feeling her worth orbiting that one empty seat. She knows she shouldn't be thinking this way. The teacher attempts to be honest with herself about why she sent B to the office five days ago. When she examines the moment, she hears the sound of B's final snap of gun, as sharp as clapping hands. When she examines her anger, she detects the unprofessional residue of feeling betrayed. She assumes that B will not come walking into her classroom for a fifth day. But she does. B is so attentive in class that the teacher is afraid the girl is setting her up. For three weeks straight, B arrives on time. Her supplies are in a black canvas satchel with a flap over the top. It is the first time the teacher has seen her hold anything close and carefully. It sits on her lap the entire class. She is clean underneath a new, age-inappropriate veneer. Her hair has been seized and shaped into a stiff box of weave on her head, and cheap, bright pink lipstick streaks across her mouth. She has been cared for. The teacher unearths another thought. She wishes that the girl's caretakers were classier. That evening on the L, she brings that thought out again and again and lets it sit, stinking, beside her. B waits for the teacher in the classroom. The teacher is shocked, shocked, thudding heart. She has not thought out a play. She busies herself at her desk after a short greeting. They are alone for 30 long seconds. It occurs to the teacher that maybe B has something to say, and she lifts her head and raises her eyebrows, ready to receive. The moment is gone. The gym teacher does not shake easily, but she is shaken. She says, I think that girl has an eyeball in her book bag. An eyeball. A laugh rises from the teacher's throat before she can stop it. B walks into class 30 seconds early without her prized black canvas satchel. Instead, she has a plastic grocery bag with a chorus of thank yous printed on the side. She comes to the teacher's desk like a doe to a fence. Today, she wears clean clothes and the teacher's wish has been granted. B's face is washed. There is no ridiculous weave. The teacher's husband has flown to the other side of the planet on business. His cat chooses four days after his departure as the day to leak shit on the carpet and die. (laughs) The teacher knows of two ways to get animal bones so smooth and glossy they seem unreal, almost manufactured. She remembers her great-aunts, the unsentimental efficiency of their land, soft denim coveralls, and a summertime discovery of luminous little skulls. The life in good Alabama soil can do all the work, reclaiming the meat and polishing the bones. That's one way. The other is to boil them. Bee's brother Aldous cups his hands under the brown running water and over and over he pours water into Bee's hair. He has placed a slightly sour towel across her shoulders. He adds a gummy clear hair gel and brushes until her hair goes limp across his wide fingers. He loops a rubber band around the handful of hair, suspicious of his work, wondering if it will hold. He steps away. B does not smile but she does not take it down. Both children slink into the morning. The teacher had offered B a window of time to pick up irresistible contraband, a biology textbook from a better school district. In preparation for the girl's visit, she has manufactured a number of coincidences. Inside her refrigerator, ten sandwiches in wax paper form a sacred tower. The ody fullness of good wheat bread, the sharp tang of mustard, the smooth paper with creases like gifts, all carefully conjured from her own childhood. She is practicing a casual, I made too many for my nephew. You want to try one? Take a few home? A plump yellow timer on the stove will ting at the end of the lesson. Would you like to stay for dinner? In the closet is an almost new denim satchel with a flap over the top. Oh, (laughs) you need something to carry all this stuff. She gives last looks around her home, her classroom, the set. Everything is pulled taut and ready to snare. The teacher will tell her husband that she took care of the cat.
0: That was Pascal Armand with Shantika Seiger's Away with Bee. It seems to me that Bee's reputation helps keep the danger alive. She's a powerful young woman and a source of deep mystery. The teachers may talk about her, describing her as unconstrainable and as someone who would cut up a bird. But Sigers plays against this so beautifully in the moment when Bee's brother washes her hair. The towel around her shoulders is the opposite of a wild, witchy cape. Instead, it's just a towel, and in that moment, she's just a girl being tended to, if only briefly. Then the moment passes, and the bee we know, or more to the point, may never know, returns. When we return, a 19th century classic that will make you re-examine your wall decor. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Walitzer. This hour, we've been hearing stories of women who threaten the system. Our final story featuring women who refuse boundaries is by turn-of-the-century author Charlotte Perkins Gilman. If the name sounds familiar, well, you may know what's coming. The eerie classic about domesticity and madness, The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a story many of us were required to read in high school and retain vivid memories of to this day. The Yellow Wallpaper is much anthologized for a reason. It's a story that moved conversations about women in this country forward. Listeners may be surprised that this story, a touchstone of feminist literature, has never been featured on selected shorts. This abbreviated version was performed by Carrie Coon. She's appeared in series including The Leftovers and The Gilded Age, as well as films such as Gone Girl, and the recent Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is Carrie Coon with The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The
4: Yellow Wallpaper. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer, a colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity, but that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it, else why should it be let so cheaply, and why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in a marriage. He is a physician, and perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is nothing really the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise and have absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it or else meet with heavy opposition. So I will let it alone and talk about the house, the most beautiful place. It is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden, large and shady and lined with long grape-covered arbors. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlit evening, but he said what I felt was a draft and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza. He said we came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get, so we took the nursery at the top of the house. It is a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look all ways and sunshine galore. It was a nursery first, and then a playground and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper look as if a boys' school had used it. It is stripped off in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach, and in a great place on the other side of the room, low down. I never saw a worse paper in my life, one of those sprawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study, and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard-of contradictions." The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing since that first day. I am sitting by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please, save lack of strength. John is away all day and even some nights when his cases are serious. I am glad my case is not serious. But these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. It is fortunate Jenny is so good with the baby, such a dear baby, and yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards he said that I was letting it get the better of me and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed, it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then that gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said, and really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for a 3 months rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. He took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose. But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. I'm really getting quite fond of the big room, but all that horrid paper. Out of one window, I can see the garden. Out of another, I get a lovely view of the bay and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house. I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. I wish I could get well faster, but I must not think about that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lolls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl and those absurd unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breadths didn't match and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before and we all know how much expression they have... The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered, the plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit, only the paper. There comes John's sister, such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me, I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which made me sick, but I can write when she is out and see her a long way off from these windows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. In the places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless figure that seems to sulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. There's Sister on the stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are gone, and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course, I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now. But it tired me all the same. I don't feel as if it was worthwhile to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing and cry most of the time. Of course, I don't when John is here or anybody else, but when I am alone. And I am alone a good deal just now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. Dear John... He loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. He says, no one but myself can help me out of it, that I must use my will and self-control and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort, the baby is well and happy and does not have to occupy this nursery with that horrid wallpaper. It is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. By daylight, she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still. It is so puzzling, it keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. "'John says it is good for me and to sleep all I can. "'Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down "'for an hour after each meal. "'It is a very bad habit, I am convinced, "'for you see, I don't sleep. "'And that cultivates deceit, for I don't tell them I'm awake. "'Oh, no. "'The fact is, I am getting a little afraid of John. "'He seems very queer sometimes, "'and even Jenny has an inexplicable look.' I have watched John when he did not know I was looking and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses and I've caught him several times looking at the paper and Jenny too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room and when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet voice with the most restrained manner possible what she was doing with the paper, she turned around as if she'd been caught stealing and asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said, that the paper stained everything it touched that she had found yellow smooches on all my clothes and john's and she wished we would be more careful did that not sound innocent but i know she was studying that pattern and i am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself life is very much more exciting now than it used to be you see i have something more to expect to look forward to to watch i really do eat better and am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day and said I seem to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There's a week more, and I think that will be enough. I'm feeling ever so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch developments, but I sleep a good deal in the daytime. There are always new shoots on the fungus and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. And there is something else about that paper. The smell! I noticed at the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun, it was not bad. Now we've had a week of fog and rain, and whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. There is this very funny mark on this wall, low down near the mop board, a streak that runs around the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture except the bed. A long, straight, even smooch, as if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done, and who did it, and why they did it. Round and round, round and round and round, it makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. The front pattern does move, and no wonder the woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one. And she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then in the very bright spots, she keeps still. And in the very shady spots, she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she is all the time trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It is the same woman I know, for she is always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her on that long shaded lane creeping up and down. I see her in those dark grape arbors creeping all around the garden. I see her on the long road under the trees creeping along, and when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep at daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all the windows at once, but turn as fast as I can, I can only see out of one at one time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes, away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only the top pattern could be gotten off from the under one. I mean to try it, little by little. I have found out another funny thing. But I shan't tell it this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night for all I am so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind, as if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah! This is the last day, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was very clever, for really, I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook. I shook and she pulled and before morning, we had peeled off yards of that paper, a strip about as high as my head and half around the room. And then when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite to the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent, but I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could, and not to wake me even for dinner, I would call when I woke. So now she is gone and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room now it is bare again. How those children did tear about in here! This bedstead is fairly gnawed, but I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame, and then I got so angry I bit off a little piece at one corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growth just shriek with derision. I'm getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows, even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out on the road there! I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, not even if Jenny asks me to. For outside, you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here, I can creep smoothly on the floor, and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man. You can't open it. Oh, how he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, said I, in the gentlest voice, the key is down by the front steps under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, open the door, my darling. I can't, said I, the key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see, and he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter, he cried, for God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jenny, and I pulled off most of the paper so you can't put me back. Now, why should that man have fainted? But he did. (laughs) And right across my path by the wall so that I had to creep over him every time. (laughs) That
0: was Carrie Coon performing an abridged version of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, The Yellow Wallpaper, now let's talk with journalist and critic Mona el The story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which you presented that fabulous night at Dangerous Women, you know, is really about power and suppression What are your feelings about that story? Did you just read it for the first time then? Yeah, so I was brand new to the Yellow Wallpaper. Oh, that's great. I had not read it. And
1: Carrie Coon's reading that night was just incredible.
0: How would you describe that reading? It was,
1: you know, a mixture of surreal and horrific and just so ordinary. It was like you're sitting there listening to someone tell you an experience they had. And the more they go on, the more you realize, oh my goodness, this person is having a breakdown. This woman is having a breakdown.
0: And Carrie just conveyed that so wonderfully. Just listening to her made me tingle. (laughs) The story is a feminist classic, but you say that Gilman held some views that were terrible. What do we do with that more generally? Is this something that you're thinking about, continuing to read uh, pieces by writers who have, you know, made disturbing comments or held disturbing views that only come to light later? While I recognize how important it is to
1: read this text for what it was telling us. You know, the medical male establishment, patriarchy, you know, with all the power that it had, symbolized by her husband in the story. And it reflected something that happened in her life because she had postpartum depression. And much like the character in The Yellow Wallpaper, she was prescribed this, quote unquote, rest cure or restorative cure, which I also learned Virginia Woolf and so many others had also been prescribed because it was this really famous doctor who basically told women, just sit there and do nothing and try also to not even think. So don't draw, don't write, don't do anything, just sit there. You know, sit still and look pretty, basically. Mm. And of course it didn't work. There's a straight line from what she was talking about in the Yellow Wallpaper about how the medical establishment can harm you to what is happening in the United States today. But then we also have to take The context of her other work. She was a eugenicist, she was a racist, and she refused to identify as a feminist. I also very recently learned that at the age of 19, she fell in love with a woman and she wanted to spend the rest of her life with a woman. And so I I can see all the ways that her work can represent something we can continue to say, look, go and read this. But it must be, especially today in the United States, with so much white supremacy and so much anti-blackness and so much discussion around white feminism and how white feminism has to be held accountable. We have to place her in that context.
0: You know, I was reading you uh, with great pleasure late at night, and I sort of went down this feminist rabbit hole, I guess, going from one thing to another in that way that we do online. I'm sure you do, too. And one place sparks an interest and you go someplace else. And I started doing almost like a little feminist history tourism late at night. And it was very nostalgic and kind of moving, but also sort of enraging and sad. And I was wondering, what's your community like? It's a really important question.
1: You know, so many of these icons of ours have talked about how dangerous it is to be who they are and the risks that they take. I'm reminded of Bell Hooks. She wrote a book, I read it in 2014, called Remember Rapture on the Writer's Life, I think it was called. And in an essay that she wrote in that book called Women Who Write Too Much, she reminds us that we have to write too much. And she quotes Annie Dillard saying, write as if you were dying. And she says, you know, we've lost so many black feminists at a really young age, Lorraine Hansberry, June Jordan, Audrey Lord, you know, and I put them in community with with Firestone and others who have known the stress and the pain and the danger of of being feminists or queer, the challenges that they represented to patriarchy. So I consider them my community, my community of elders and icons and mentors.
0: That was writer Mona El-Tahawi, another perfect illustration of the maxim, well-behaved women seldom make history. And to all the other loud, rowdy, bold and dangerous women out there, we salute you and hope to learn a thing or two or three from you. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimpkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.